Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Invest first, foremost, and always in yourself. Increase your skills, increase your value, and continue to grow and learn because that's going to be your real key to wealth in a sustainable way. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast. This is your host, Krista Bigler, private practice integrative nutritionist, helping people across the U.S. reverse digestive issues, eczema, and autoimmunity via phone and video consult. To learn more, visit lessstressednutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Okay, today on The Less Stressed Life, we are talking about a topic that can be stressful for a lot of people, which is money, finances. And we are having really one of my favorite experts come on to talk about money and money mindset today because his book, which we'll talk about in a little bit, was really actually pretty transformative in my own business and in my own life because I, whether I realized it or not, I kind of grew up in a poor money mindset um, where I thought I just don't care about that. It's not important to me. And that's not necessarily a way to serve people the best um, because you actually do need cash and you need to have this transaction for ultimately respect and um, to to have um, influence and to help other people. So let me introduce Garrett Gunderson. Garrett is the chief wealth architect at Wealth Factory and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Killing Sacred Cows. The Wealth Factory helps entrepreneurs and others optimize their cash flows and streamline their finances and keep more of their hard-earned money so they can make more powerful investments in their best wealth creator, their business, uh, and life. Garrett has appeared multiple times on ABC News Now, Your World with Neil Cavado on Fox, and CNBC's Squawk on the Street and more. And his first firm made the Inc. 500. Welcome, Garrett. Hey, good to be with you. Look forward to this today. Yeah, so I was just telling you off air how Killing Sacred Cows was really important book in my life to the point where it was one of those and I, I when I read reviews of it I see other people do the same thing you buy it for other people because you're thinking of them while you're listening to the book or reading the book. <laughs> yeah. and so I give it to people I'm not sure if they appreciate it in the same way that I do when you give them a book that says that now it's got kind of a confusing title on the out like if you were judging the book by its title tell us what that means killing sacred cows it, yeah when you say confusing title the two things that get confused most of the time are people think first and foremost that it's a vegan book is not a vegan book <laughs> and um, second is people in India like I, I saw someone on a flight that saw, that had you know 
the book and they're like, dude, I was reading this on a previous flight and this Indian person's like, why would you kill sacred cows? I'm like, metaphor. Like there's the <laughs> there's this biblical metaphor about people worshiping sacred cows, right? Like, and for me, it's these unquestioned beliefs that get handed down that don't make sense. So they're myths and misinformation, especially around money, that we learn from well-intentioned yet misinformed people like anything from pre preachers, teachers, parents, and sometimes from Depression-era thinking that lead us astray. And so because of that, I just wanted to illuminate and highlight nine key areas where there's these subtle lies. The obvious ones we detect and we avoid, but what about these subtle ones that really hold us back? or restrict us from a financial and monetary or abundance type standpoint. But once they're identified, we know how to navigate and avoid the missteps and the landmines out there so that we have kind of permission to succeed. So it's a very philosophical book, more around mindset than anything else. Right. So the sacred cows are the money myths that we need to get rid of in order to have our best life. So tell me what it sounds like, because it's been a while since I listened to the book, but the, throughout, I was thinking, oh, this sounds just like so-and-so. Can you give us some examples of what it sounds like when people have these myths or these poor money relationships or mindsets? mindsets? What are some things that they say? Number one, um, the favorite statement they say is, I can't afford it. I, can't, I don't have the money. That's one of the most common things you'll hear said. Or, um, you know, like that. I see that happen all the time. Or, I've got to get out of debt. That's another statement that people are misinformed on what debt is. Or they'll say things like, man, I, I'm insurance poor. I've heard people say insurance poor before, and they just don't understand how to utilize insurance to their benefit. Um, and so those are a few of the pieces. But but ultimately, um, I, I see people where they just don't want to take responsibility for their finances. They feel intimidated. They feel scared. They feel like it's too complicated. They feel like they've just got to hand it over to someone else and that one day, someday it's going to be better. So when I hear people talk about retirement plans and compound interest, that's when I know they're held captive by certain myths. Like we don't just set our money aside and wait for one day, someday, and 30 years from now, it's going to magically work. And ultimately, there's a lot of people that have read books that are all about budgeting and scrimping and sacrifice and delaying and deferral. And any of those terms don't really have to do with wealth building. They have to do with accumulation. But the problem with accumulation is no one shrinks their way to wealth. And if we're held captive to those thought processes, bad philosophy and hard work don't equal prosperity. So I find when people place blame on others, when people feel like situationally is why they're not wealthy or that, you know, you just kind of hear it in everyday conversation with words like can't, complicated. You know, it's just you, you know it when you hear it, especially if you've read it, you can start to pick it out really easily. Right, exactly. You just mentioned something that's kind of a thorn in a lot of people's side, which is insurance. But you have sort of a different way of thinking about insurance. You want to share some thoughts on that? Yeah, first off, I believe that people are using insurance improperly. Like what it's intended to do is to ensure the catastrophic, not the inconsequential. And more people now are using insurance for the inconsequential things, which are the most expensive things to insure because they're more likely to happen. And they're exposed on the catastrophic because they're less likely to happen. But the catastrophic things, if they do happen, can confiscate so much wealth and be such a derailment or setback that maybe people can't really recover from it. Yeah. So I like to like not have any insurance on things that I can write a check for and that I can go to sleep at night and not worry about. I like to insure the things that if it were to happen, 
could decimate my legacy or be overwhelming to to take care of. Like car insurance, I'm not worried about protecting my cars. I can handle that if I had to. I'm worried about protecting from a liability standpoint, right? Like what if someone hits me and they're not insured? I want my insurance to cover me for my losses of income. Or what if I hit someone else accidentally and something happens to them? I don't want to have to come up with that money or hire the attorneys. I want the insurance companies worth billions of dollars to actually take care of it, to have the attorneys, to write the checks. So if insurance is doing what it's intended to do, it should be a more efficient way for you to be able to transfer risk. That's what it's intended to do is transfer risk. And this is what I look at. If I have to use my own money to insure, it's costing me at least a dollar to insure that for every dollar of insurance. If I'm using someone else's money, I'm going to spend a lot less than a dollar to get at least a dollar of insurance. And so I look at it from an efficiency standpoint, from a protecting my mindset standpoint, from protecting my legacy type standpoint, not in the, you know, if I get in a little fender bender, I'll just pay cash for that. If someone steals something minor from my house, I'll just take care of that on my own. I'm not looking for it to take care of every minimal thing, even when it comes to health insurance. I don't let health insurance dictate what doctor I go to or what type of healthy things that I do along the way. I do whatever that is, and then it's there in case something catastrophic were to happen and I need a major surgery or a life-saving type of um, event that they can help me with because of some incident. And so I think the more we only insure the, the catastrophic and we stop insuring the inconsequential, we keep more money, we transfer the major risks, and then we just handle the, the little things on our own. Yeah, sure. So on that note, you mentioned something uh, about health insurance, right, which is a kind yeah. of, again, a thorn. So let's say we could talk about that. But let's say we're just trying to prioritize how we're spending money. Like you just said, mm-hmm. just because my I have this health insurance doesn't mean that it's going to affect the things I do. It doesn't mean I'm going to say, well, I've got health insurance. I'm just going to smoke all the time because I don't have to worry about life, right? But um, we have a really health-savvy audience here. So let's pretend that we need to spend money to correct our health, right? So the left rest of the life doesn't fall apart, um, but someone doesn't believe they have the money to spend on themselves. So what do you say to that person when they're trying to prioritize things? Like, let's, I mean, I, I know there's multiple things that are going on there. Do they really have the money? Do they not? But what would you say to that person? Well, look, you are your greatest asset, not a stock, not a bond, not a piece of real estate. And I hear people say all the time they can't afford it, but we've got to look at the three measures of worth. The first measure is the price. That's the dollars we pay. The second measure is the cost. It's the net impact or effect. And the third measure is the value, which is our overall feeling of satisfaction and fulfillment and just personal enjoyment. And so when people look at price alone, that's where they can say things like, I don't have the money. I can't do that, right? Which is a deliberate, uh, it like debilitates us with that type of declaration. Where if we look at what is the cost, if I don't take care of my health now, I'll have to pay later. If I'm not eating the right types of foods and, and I'm constantly stressed and it's creating hypertension, I might not notice that a lot today, but there will be a reckoning in the future. And I don't know if this is an African proverb or where I got this from. I didn't invent it, but I, I, I like the statement that says a person with their health has a thousand dreams, a person without has but one, right? If we don't take care of our health, then it is going to cost us in the future. And I saw people that scrimped and saved and sacrificed and set all this money aside to watch it go away within three years because of the hospital visits, because of the nursing care, and because of all of those things that eventually they had a reckoning with because they didn't take care of themselves. And so 
Like if you're funding a retirement plan and you're not healthy, that retirement plan isn't going to mean anything because you're going to have to spend those dollars in the future in a place that isn't as pleasurable as feeling good energy today. Because I don't, I, I believe in harmony and I feel like wealth is something that comes in five tracks. And I don't really believe in balance because I don't think we can be perfectly balanced. So that's kind of stagnation and we kind of go in and out. But harmony is that we're just present and that we know what we're doing and we're deliberate about it and we're at peace with it, right? So lower stress is, would be harm, harmonious. So there's five tracks of wealth. One is our money and money's critical because it's, it's lifestyle. If we don't figure out and master money, it's always going to be a crux. It's always going to be a stress. We're going to have cash flow crunches. We're going to have misinformation. We're going to lose, right? The second thing is our purpose. And our sole purpose in specifically, which is our values and our abilities and our passions combined for the highest context of our life, it's the best version of who we are. The third thing would be our mindset. If someone's constantly in scarcity, they're going to have a massive amount of stress in their life because everything's going to be a problem for them and they're going to remunerate in that problem rather than come up with a solution. The fourth thing would be our health or our physical well-being. That's a big track of our wealth. And then the fifth thing is social. It's our relaxation, rejuvenation, and recreation. And to be wealthy, you've got to have depth in each one of these things. Not perfect balance, just depth, intention. And part of being successful would be identifying what quality of life means to you. And so if we neglect our health because we afford it, it will inevitably be so much more expensive in the future. You know, like, like, look, my family, my grandfather had a kidney transplant. My mom had a kidney transplant. Her sister had a kidney transplant. Like, I've got certain signs with cysts on my kidneys that I was like, okay, I'm going to be crazy pro proactive. What foods are going to actually support my kidney? I'm going to let go of anger, unlike the Italian side of my family, which could be hard on the kidneys. I got to be careful um, with what types of things are happening in the exposures and environmental toxins that have to do with what the kidney would have to process. And so by being deliberate about that, from the time I had elevated creatinine of 1.7, I'm now down to 1.3. It's actually getting better. My bun, which was above high range, is now in range because of my choices of everything from meditation and heart rate variability breathing to the that I'm getting the right amount of sleep and supplementation and taking time off and not just working myself to death. And if I find myself in an angry place, then it's about forgiveness. It's about, you know, love. And, and like, look, that's not really everything to do with finance, but at the same time it is because you could have all the money in the world. If you don't have your health, you'd probably give all that money back just to get your health back because that's where we get that feeling of energy. So like, I, I don't care if someone doesn't fund a dollar into their retirement plan and they put it all into their health because the more healthy you is going to be more productive, more in, you know, more happy. And I believe that really we're out to build a life we love, not build a retirement account that we never touch or utilize because we don't want to pay taxes. Right. I love this so much. I love how you shared exactly your own health journey, too. I worked in kidney disease for a long time, and it's an expensive, expensive place to be. You're, um, and it's largely, actually, now you have definitely have some genetic pieces, but there it, it can be largely um, lifestyle influenced, as you kind of shared. So I love it. Actually, let's talk about you a little bit more. How did this kid, this long-haired kid from a small coal mining town, uh, get into finance and money mindset and all of that. Well, look, when I was 15 years old, I started my first business detailing cars. And I ended up being in entrepreneurial competitions. And I went from third place to first place to winning state to winning the Young Entrepreneur for the Small Business Administration. And that came with money. And I wanted to invest that money because I wanted to get out of the small coal mining town I was growing up in that was going in a direction where it was shrinking and not growing, less opportunity and not more. 
And so I just thought, all right, what would it take to invest this money? And as I went down the path of figuring that out, I got offered an internship, which sounded amazing. It was really just a product peddling, you know, type of organization selling mutual funds and life insurance, had more training around building relationships and establishing rapport than actually technical situations with what happens in money. And when the market started to go down in the year 2000, I decided I couldn't just tell people that they run it for the long haul or the market's on sale or any of those kind of trite cliches that you hear in the world of finance. And so I went on a two year, two month journey, traveling somewhere every single month and interviewing the brightest minds using my age to my advantage. People are willing to talk to teenagers or people in their early 20s that haven't made a successful life yet that these guys are going, oh, I'll pay it forward. And so I was able to see how things really worked and I was just fascinated by it. And I wanted to solve it for myself and for my family. And I wanted to just become a better investor. And in that process, I figured out a lot of things that weren't being trained, taught, or educated that most of the masses were missing. And so I built out my own program and started writing my books. And I'd never thought that that was possible or what I set out to do. Um, but it's been kind of my life's work and what I consider my art in life. Like I love to dissect and then go, oh, how do I make this simple and entertaining? And how do I make sure it's practical so people could implement it? And I just, I get giddy about those kind of things. I'm just really passionate about it. Right. And I will just say that, say that. money, the conversation of money can be a little bit, um, that's the stuff that makes me want to kind of go to sleep sometimes. But Garrett, you do a great job at relating it. So I think you're fulfilling your life's purpose. You did. Uh, for, for people who think money is boring, listen to Garrett on Audible, I think, uh, especially with the, with the family stories. Did you ever get in trouble for sharing so much about your aunt? Oh, uh, I, I did get in a lot of trouble about it. Uh, not <laughs> trouble that I cared about, but um, I, I had family members approach my uncle and say, why did Garrett have to write about, about that? And when she died, they, you know, they told me not to come to the funeral. I, I kind of saw that as a blessing because she really, unfortunately, was a pretty miserable human. Um, and not because she was born that way, but she succumbs so deeply to scarcity that she's become my example of what happens when we don't have awareness, what happens when we have misinformation. Because within her was a sole purpose. Within her was something great, but the bitterness took over. The hoarding of money took over. The, you know, like it got to the point where my grandfather, my hero, her brother, and her had a falling out based upon what happened. Like, I haven't, I don't know that I've really shared this story, but I'm happy to share it at, at this stage. They're both they're both deceased. I mean, my grandfather came to me and I shared part of it, but I'm going to share the full thing here when she got put in the hospital because that Italian family, it was him and his two sisters. But she never got married and she took care of their mom who happened to live to 103, which is a miracle when it comes to health because she never she never moved. She was always on the same spot of the couch every time I ever saw her. She took Valium every day because she had the highest level of stress of anyone that I'd ever met in my life and somehow defied the odds to live to 103. So my aunt had $550,000 in her savings account. Right. But that money wasn't really hers. It was her and her siblings. And when she started to get really sick because she never took care of her health, she was going to have to go into a nursing home. And then my grandfather was starting to get worried because, you know, that was all going to potentially take all of that money. And I went through and proved out that two thirds of the money was really him and his other sisters. And so, you know, you have like this three year look back that you can't just transfer funds and then all of a sudden go into government programs so they could do a clawback. So I protected two thirds of that money. And in that process, 
I, I invested it for a short period of time. I had some really unique real estate deals that weren't kind of long-term deals that would last, but I was getting them 36% for two years. And that 36% was coming in and it was covering all the bills just from the interest that was coming in. And then I said, hey, the, the market's changing. I don't think we could do this anymore. We have to put it somewhere where it's more fixed, which was like 4%. And so my great aunt accused my grandfather of stealing money because when the interest rate changed and got lower, she thought he was taking the difference. It was just that the difference wasn't being earned anymore. And she was used to getting her couple thousand dollars a month for doing nothing. And they had such a falling out that they never spoke for several years. And he didn't even go to her funeral. So this is what scarcity can do. I mean, my grandfather did everything from her, was constantly fixing her furnace, taking care of her house. You know, um, we would go over once a week to visit her and my great grandma. You know, he drove her to the hospital or to doctors that was two hours away from the small town we lived in. And all of that based upon greed and scarcity, destroying an entire life of relationship. And so it's, it's really unfortunate, but that's where she got to. So even the people that when it was going on, I called other family members to say what had happened. And these were people that changed my diapers as a kid. And then they started to accuse me that I took the money because I was driving a Bentley. That's what scarcity does. That's the level of insanity, you know, and that was really hard on my grandfather for the rest of his life. But he had my back. He knew that we had just done something extraordinary and got punished for it. So he gave her 100 percent of his money, moved on and never spoke to her again, keeping all the money that he had from the working years as a coal miner and his retirement plans and things I had helped him with. And the good news is I actually created a strategy to create an extra quarter of a million dollars for him and my grandma over the next 15 years, which made up for the money that he gave up to her, which was probably, you know what, like 180 grand. So like, that's insane though. Right. So I don't mind speaking the truth and, and that part of the family, you know, they just were in, in the wrong philosophy. That's why it's so important for me to spend the right time with my kids and have them influenced by the right people and to identify scarcity and victimhood and address it. That's exactly kind of the question I was just going to go to is that so many people, you can't really choose your family, right? To to any extent, except for the ones that you marry into. And even then, sometimes you don't realize what you're getting with a with a money mindset. How do you, now that you've dealt with a really tricky situation, that was a, a pretty challenging family situation. What would you, what's your advice looking back on that? What would you tell someone? I mean, there's so many complicated money situations, right? Where people do have this scarcity hoarding, et cetera, um, and they just want to save, 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 and not uh, spend for happiness, um, which is ultimately kind of what what we're doing here on Earth. Um, what's yeah. your advice in these really tricky family situations for people? You've got to start early, and you've got to have conversations that most people don't have. So. My family, meaning my wife and my two two boys, we meet at least twice a month where we do this, what we call our family retreat meeting. And so we start with the kids filling out a, a gratitude journal for kids. So they get in a gratitude mindset. Then we read our family mission statement, which means, okay, we did the same thing for our family that everyone does for their business. We created a mission statement. It, you know, And then we go over it and we have them talk about it so it doesn't just live on the wall. It lives inside of their hearts. And, they, and we actually had them contribute as we wrote it. Then we go over our family values. Each person in the family reads one at a time and we say, what does it mean to you? And the kids, you know, they're 11 and 13, so they don't quite get it 100%, but we're working towards that. We sketched out a family crest together with my brother-in-law. 
And then we actually had an artist make an actual physical representation that's a full-on shield that goes above the mantle. And then we took pictures of it. We had the kids talk about it. They were part of the design of it. They have little symbols on there that they came up with. So they're starting to feel part of that. You know, and then we just talk about what we could do to advance each other's skills over the over the week. And then we have our philosophy on, okay, guys, if you want to make money, we don't just give you chores because I don't want them to think about uh, physical labor equals money. I don't want them to get in a coal miner mindset that my family we've just escaped from in this generation. Mm -hmm. So we have them come up with ideas. And I'm really proud of my 13 year old because he downloaded an app on my phone that he earns points that he can actually buy video games with. By me just walking and I was skeptical but first did the research and he can actually do that so I was like that's leverage that's really cool right and then I asked him like what types of things they can do to earn money and they have to negotiate with us and they have to invoice us so we're starting to teach these things and we're having these conversations and the 11 year old not too long ago asked me if we were rich and I said well, I am. I have no idea about you. That's yet to be determined. And so that's the kind of conversations we have, right? Like that you have to create value and you have to discover what it is, the value that you're going to create. And, you know, I, when they turn 14, I, I plan on them starting a business and I coach them. And I either partner with them or support them so that they can learn about this and they can see what it's like to manage and they can see what it's like to have money come in. But it's when families don't have these conversations, like the book, The Millionaire Next Door, there's been research that these millionaires that, that are, they look like paupers, they act like paupers, that when they die, the wealth is gone within 16 months because their heirs were not prepared for receiving the money, didn't know that it was even there because they didn't recognize it. They never lived like the wealth. They just, these they were hoarded and it was set aside into an account. So you know, I look at sometimes it's hard for me to have these conversations with my kids. So uh, next year, I'm going to take the oldest to Russia. We're going to spend extended time and it'll just be me and him. So when we're really bonded and we're away from technology and we've done some things, then I can talk about this and have him listen versus trying to tell him on the way to school or interrupting what he's doing, you know, with homework or a video game and trying to talk to him about it. Like I like when they come to, to me and I'm going to create more of those situations in order to do it. But we've got to invest that time. Now, if you already have, you know, you, you have these family messes, I just say, you've got to hit these conversations head on. You've just got to talk about it and, and you got to have, you know, you, you got to read and, and even share the concepts and not everyone's going to get it. It's not always going to work out because maybe they're stubborn in their ways or it's too late in the game, but you got to ask, is it worth it? And, and for me, it is, I'm willing to forgive. I'm willing to like, I would have talked to my aunt Mary. I just, she destroyed her relationship with her brother by simply not knowing the facts because we took care of something while she was sick and incapacitated. And then she came back to blame us. So, you know, I just moved on. I just said, okay, who could I, who is willing to listen? And my kids are young enough. They're still quasi listening. And when they ask a question, I got to drop it all and go, okay, they're ready to hear it versus me just doing it on my time. Right. Love it. Garrett, what's a couple things people can do right now to improve their finances, if that's what you want to leave them with today? Automatically save and deliberately invest. That means pay yourself first. Progress over per perfection. Done is better than perfect. Just set up a separate account. It can be a checking, a money market, or a savings account. But every time you go to pay yourself personally, take a percentage off the top and then just live off the rest. As you want, As time goes on, continue to increase that. You want to at least have six months of savings set aside. And when you have that type of liquidity, then you've got more safety and staying power. And then if you, you know, I think most people are overpaying their taxes. So, you know, learn, I'll give you resources to help 
teach you on that in a simple way. Most people, if they have more than one loan, are paying a higher interest rate than they need to. So they can either refinance or renegotiate the interest rate or reallocate by taking assets that aren't performing and pay off the loan and free up their cash flow. Or just being more deliberate with our investing. If you don't know how it works, how you might benefit, it's not creating cash flow for you. It's time to move to cash and learn how to become a better investor. Not by knowing everything that's out there, but getting good at one or two things that are aligned with who you are, what I would call your investor DNA. And then finally, you know, get rid of duplicate coverages or inconsequential insurances and only insure the catastrophic. This is going to help you keep way more of what you make and forget about the budgeting mindset. Focus and tend to be in an abundant mindset. And once you paid yourself first, it, it helps out. Once you have six months of savings, that helps out. But invest first, foremost, and always in yourself. Increase your skills, increase your value, and continue to grow and learn because that's going to be your real key to wealth in a sustainable way. I love it. Thanks so much, Garrett, for bring, coming on and sharing this with us. Um, I'm guessing that there's some resources on taxes, et cetera, we'll throw in the show notes and send out to, to people afterwards. Awesome. Hey, have a great one. Thanks. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 